gentlemen, boys and ghouls, to all of our non-binary friends, to everyone on the spectrum and in between, welcome to another episode of The Shudder Show, the, stu- the show where we talk about the stuff that is on Shudder. My name is Ken Stacknick, and this is my co-host, David Marlowe. David, how are you doing today? You know, Ken, I'm doing pretty good, doing pretty well. It's been a lot of, a lot of wedding planning. We are literally two and a half months away, and it is... So weird. It is It is so goddamn weird. We've been engaged for, thanks to this pandemic, two years now. Uh, we were supposed to get ma- uh, married originally in April, and uh, that turned out not to so much be the case. So, so yeah, the wife is, uh, or the fiancé, is house-sitting for her boss, so she's been gone for like a whole month and a half right now. So it's been, a, it's been nothing but chaos. Um, but yeah, how about yourself, Ken? How you doing, bud? I am fit as a fiddle and ready for love, David. <laughs> now, Ken, uh, before we uh, we hop into our film of the day, uh, if you lo- if you don't mind, I would love to talk a little bit about uh, a fellow podcast called Campfire Classics. Now, Campfire Classics is a spectacular comedy podcast hosted by a fellow Ken, uh, Ken Sandberg and Heather Michelle Lawler, where they take a raunchy deep dive into the literary classics, both known and not so known. Follow these hilarious hosts as they dissect and read to you excerpts from novels like In the Court of the Dragon, Man Size in Marble, and The Star. You can check out Campfire Classics wherever podcasts are found. So sit back, pour yourself that glass of wine or that snifter of brandy, and enjoy the hilarious dulcimer tones of Heather and Ken's Campfire Classics. Hi, Ken. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. From, from one Ken to another. Hey, buddy. How's it going? How are things with the consortium? Did you uh, get your badge and your membership card? I hope so. You're on the list. <laughs> Ken, which movie are we talking about today? David, we are talking about the 2018 film directed by Panos Kosmatos, Mandy. Ooh. Now, this has been requested for quite some time, and now finally we were able to slip it into... Um, we were able to slip it into the voting stream and it came, came out ahead quite a bit, actually. So, yeah, I think I saw this kind of around when it came out, maybe after it just got out of theaters. Uh, what about you? I definitely saw this in theaters. This was one of my favorite viewing uh, experiences of that year. I saw it with my friend Drew and he had one of my, my favorite responses to seeing this movie. We got out of the film and kind of walked into the parking lot. And he just turned and looked at me and said, I feel like I kind of need to strip off my clothes and run naked through the woods. And like, that's, that (laughs) is a, that is an apropos response to the experience of seeing Mandy. David, what was your first viewing experience like? Um, well, my first viewing experience was, I, I feel the same way for a lot of people, which was stoned and confused. Um, I, I think I, I went into the film originally expecting something different because a friend told me, watch this with no context. Don't watch the trailer. Just watch the movie. It is Nicolas Cage's at his craziest which I think is a very bad way to set someone up for this film. It's not him at his craziest. It might be him at the most, Nicolas Cage. But yes. let us not forget that Nicolas Cage has an Oscar. 
Nicolas Cage can make the alphabet interesting. Nicolas Cage is not necessarily a bad performer. Whether he's a good actor and thespian, I think depends on the role and depends on the circumstances. However, one of my favorite descriptions of Nicolas Cage came from Nicolas Cage himself, actually. He described himself as the California Klaus Kinski. And if you know anything about Klaus Kinski, you will know how right Nicolas Cage is. And much like Klaus Kinski, like a, a subtle, nuanced performance is not why the man gets a check. He gets a check because he's going to give you something unique. And Mandy, who Mandy is unique. Yes. And Cosmatos, I even think, like said, like, like this is kind of what I'm looking for for the uh, the main character, Red, which he originally had uh, Cage read for the villain. Um, which, I can see I, that. Yeah, yeah. So he, yeah, he originally brought him, because um, Nicholas Cage says that he has, uh, not Shia LaBeouf, he has Frodo. God damn it. Um, yeah, played Frodo. Elijah I, Wood. Thank you. Elijah Wood. Jesus fucking Christ. Um, he has Elijah Wood to thank for being in this film because Elijah Wood is a huge uh, horror fan. He loves all those weird, crazy movies, which is why he's in a bunch of weird, crazy movies. Well, and why he's a producer on this movie. Oh, that's right. Yes, and that's right. Elijah Wood is a producer on this film. Um, But yeah, he was talking about how they were putting this film together and they were interested in him for the the role of, oh gosh, what's the, the character's name? Um, Gotta give you more clues say, than that. Jeremiah. Man. Jeremiah. No, no. Uh, it was uh, the character Jeremiah, which was played by Linus Roach. Um, and Linus Roach has Nicolas Cage to thank for this because Nick Cage said, actually, I would really like to play Red. And so they sort of were going back and forth on that. And Cage was able to eventually convince things like that. No, like, I'm in the right headspace for this. Uh, and I think he had like a broken leg at the time, too. Like, he got into an injury, he had gone through like a bad divorce. Um, he was he was in all he was in a really strange headspace, and so he he saw this whole film as therapy to him. Um, so what you see in Mandy is Nicolas Cage expressing just his core Cage, not going full Cage, but expressing his core Cage. <laughs> um. I, I don't know. Like I, watching this on the second run was much, much better than watching this on the first run. The first run, I didn't realize what a slow burn it was, and that all the crazy shit really wasn't going to happen until like the second half. Which don't get me wrong, crazy shit still happens in the first half. It's just different. It's a much, as you said, it is a slow burn. There yes. are two things that going to this movie, or I would say three things. If you, if you are listening to this right now and you don't know if you're going to watch Mandy, before you watch Mandy, you should know three things. A, you should definitely watch the trailer to let you, like, because, like, this is not a movie that is easily spoiled. Even if you know what's going to happen, it's the way that it happens that kind of is the reason to watch it. So yeah. watching the trailer, I don't think gives anything away other than gives you a vibe and some teaser images that you can try to put together in your head, but will come together magnificently on the screen. Two. I think, oh, go ahead. Hold on. Two. I think it should be illegal to watch this movie during the daytime. 
this is a movie that you need to watch at night. It just lights plays off. way better that way. And then three, what you need to know is it's going to take a minute. But that's because the second, not even half, second uh, two thirds. Yeah. Like, yeah actually, it's, it's, actually it's split the, into the three last, parts. The last third of the movie, it, like, because the middle third has some intense moments to it. But the cray, like the crank two of it all, doesn't happen until the last third. And something I think that's important to keep in mind is something that I remember Mark Kermode saying, which is if you start a movie at a 10, you have nowhere to go. And that happens a lot with horror movies where you have your opening stinger and sometimes it's the best thing in the movie or 30, 40 minutes into the movie, everyone's screaming at the top of their lungs, chainsaws are going, explosions are happening and there's nowhere to go in the third act. This movie ramps up real slow and then as it goes on, takes you further and further down the rabbit hole. Yes. I, I, I think a good way also, maybe like if, if you were looking to describe this in a very short sentence, it's uh, what if Charles Bronson was an art film? You mean I, what if Bronson, wait, wait, no, Bronson no. is an art film. What do you mean? What if Charles Bronson was an art film? No, no, wait, what am I? Oh God, who am I thinking of? Um, I don't know. I don't know. God, my brain is all over the place today. I've been working in the hot sun, building a, building a bunch of shit for our wedding. So my, my brain has been uh, cooked, uh, so to speak. But no, it's, um, I'm talking about um, the, the action revenge film where- It doesn't narrow it down. Where he takes revenge for his rape daughter. It's kind of- Ta- um, Taken? No, not Taken. It's older than that. Charles something. Uh, oh, Death Wish. Death Wish, thank you. Like, yeah. So it, it's like, what if Death Wish was turned into an art film? I, I, I mean, that are, I think that's incredibly reductive. If you, if you wanted to simplify it to its bare minimum. Um, I mean, okay. I mean, which, like, so this movie, like, this movie is just a revenge film in that, like, that's, there's a guy, he's got a lady that he likes. There's some bad people. They take the lady, they do bad stuff to the lady. He gets pretty mad about it and doesn't take it well. And it doesn't go well for the people who did the thing to the lady that he likes. The end. However, I think that's kind of missing the entire point. Or like, or what you're- No, there's, there, there's so much, there's so much well, more to this film than that. So like what I think is kind of actually much closer to what's going on is this movie is, this is a fairy tale about a lumberjack and his princess who's kidnapped by an evil prince, but through the aesthetics of a 1970s Led Zeppelin laser light show. (laughs) Like in the same way also that even though, yes, it's at a planetarium and you are going inside, you cannot go to a laser light show during the day. It's just not as good. Weird. You just don't. Yeah. It's just not appropriate. It's not what happens during the daytime. And this is kind of the same way. And it's got a lot of the same, like, I mean, this movie is hypnotic, hallucinogenic, uh, uh, haunting, 
and most importantly has an like an element of holy fucking shit to it that i have not seen in a long time there are images in here i will never forget of all of the movies that we have watched for this podcast i have seen almost all of them before and this one was the one that i did not have to work hard to remember at all every time something came up and i was like yep this is the blah 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 part and then that part happened and then like there was no like oh i totally forgot about no every image in this movie is seared into my mind because there's nothing else like it like there are there are elements of this movie that are similar to other things there's elements of excalibur that this movie shares there are elements of heavy metal that this movie shares. There are mm-hmm. elements I have seen people talking about, oh, well, it's like an 80s action film. And you're like, yeah. kind of. Like, it has the style of 80s action, which even, um, yes. and, and I will say, like, Cospitos, he has, a, he has just the perfect eye for that 80s look in terms of just the look of the film. Not even like the, oh, everyone's dressed for the 80s and it's 80s style. It's just like, no, he, he gets the vibe, the overall energy, the sound, the, the, the almost grainy look of everything. Like, I don't think this is really a film meant to be viewed in high definition. Um, um, no, actually, no I, no, I think it's complete. Like, I think the grain is 100% part of the... Like the high definition allows you to see the grain. The grain here is not a mistake. This movie was not shot on a film. So all no. of that grain is put in in post. post. There yeah. is a certain amount of video noise that would be um, created while they were shooting between 3,200 and uh, 1,600 ISO, sometimes even bumping up to 6,400, sometimes from what I understand. Um, but all of that grain is there on purpose. That is part of the look. That is part of the hallucinogenic uh, aspects to the image itself, mixed with the smoke, mixed with the reflections, milked, mixed with the sacked filters, mixed with the refractions uh, within those filters themselves. All of this is 100% on purpose. And almost all of this was achieved in camera on set old school. When I first saw this movie, I was fairly concerned that, uh, fairly uh, like sure that this movie had been color corrected within an inch of its life. And while yes, it has color correction to it, a huge amount of the flares and color, uh, uh, the colored lights and casts that happen in the film were done in film in camera they even put led lights around the outside of the matte box itself so they could control the color of the lights that were not going onto the actors that were not going onto the scene those lights were just shooting into the lens on the side on the outside of the field of view to create those uh, what else could be called uh, clouds of color yeah just like the Every it is one of those films where every shot is one hundred percent on purpose and with and in painstaking detail. Mm-hmm. Um, like there is not a single frame in this film that exists just to fill space. The the kind of like you were talking about, like with the the van, you just that just the shot of the van outside, and yeah, those those little beams of light on either side of it. 
it, like I, I happen to know, like, oh, that's, I mean, for an exterior shot, fuck, that looks great. That's, that's amazing. Um, it, oh God, like, it, it was just this. I'm so, for one thing, I'm glad that you, that this got picked and I'm, I'm glad that you put it up there on the list because I'm, I feel like I just watched this film originally with the wrong attitude. And I kind of watched it with that college dorm attitude. The like, what am I like? Okay, like, like, because my friend says like, like, it's Nicolas Cage is the most Nicolas Cage, and you need to be stunned when you watch it. So I did those things, um, and just it, it, it lost me. And then, by the way, like, one of my favorite movies is The Fountain. I love the artsy shit. I love it when there is when the director is saying something. I love it when everything is thought out and there's there's thought put into the visuals and the way that they tell almost a separate story from the actual written words. Um, I love stuff like that. And so watching this around the second time, I really got that, that hit that I think most people need going into this. And it's the idea that you have these two very damaged individuals who are literally the perfect match for each other just trying to live out their damaged lives and then they come across another damaged person that's the complete opposite well it's and, more like that person comes across them yes like they like they are very much in their secluded cabin doing their own thing not bothering anybody you kind of get the the vibe that like there's something that haunts nicholas cage there's a real retired knight lumberjack you know who's now a lumberjack because he just he's like i want to go out to the forest i want to try he was he trees. was dexter in a previous life yeah i mean like some, <laughs> some something along those lines but i mean like there's a real medieval fairy tale aspect to this in that like the the cult leader even when we see him for the first time he's like laying on this bed and he's almost talking to his vassals who are like his hand and like the witch like you have you know, and then they go and they call forth this great power. There's a real, like a broken kingdom kind of a vibe to this. There's a, re this is like, this is almost like Princess Bride on a bad LSD trip. Yes. I, it's, it's the idea that the three main characters, like uh, Red and Mandy and Jeremiah, they're both, they're all three of them are different forces of nature. Mm -hmm. um, the two forces of nature are nurturing and, and caregiving. And the third one is just a hurricane of like a hurricane of fucking male entitlement, which is something that the director really wanted you to get when you came across Jeremiah. Like, this is somebody who has mistaken what was the oh gosh has 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 mistaken his self-importance for enlightenment yeah um like his his neurotic like his neuroticism and his whole idea of like everything evolves around him he thinks it's because he's enlightened because his work and his art is better than everyone else and it, it it's the best out there, but really he's just a giant narcissist. 
and it's a it's a big statement about like how like yep these these types of people are everywhere maybe not necessarily to this degree but like amongst a lot of men there is this whole state of like i see this woman i must possess her and fuck everything else yeah and that woman by the way is uh played by andrea riceboro who is who is who's amazing in this movie she has this incredibly haunting but interesting but well-worn she's not classically beautiful but at the same time she is it's you're almost unable to take your eyes off of her she's so her performance is yeah her performance is so nuanced and really brings you in one of the things that i think is really interesting about the approach that panos took was he very easily could have set this during a non-specific in the woodsy kind of a time, you know, and just have them drive non-specific cars and just not have any cell phones. And it could have been the 80s, and 70s, and 2000s, which is kind of off the beaten path a little bit. But instead, this movie is very specifically in the 80s. And especially in the opening half an hour when we're meeting Red and Mandy, there is a casualness and a realness, but at the same time, an artifice to the way that they talk to each other that makes you treat them like a real couple and not like two archetypes. It would have been so easy to make Nicolas Cage the pure Lancelotian lumberjack guy and Mandy this virtuous you know, character or, yeah, or, or vice versa and make him kind of dark and brooding, but clearly she's brought him around, you know, kind of a John Wicky kind of a vibe to it. But instead they just make them these two kind of weirdos in love. And like, she likes drawing and he really likes her art. And like, he likes making bad jokes to her. Like he makes the Erica Estrada joke, which is both terrible, but exactly the kind of joke that you make to your partner six seven years in when you guys have kind of just settled into your nonsense and like like even if it's a bad joke she thinks it's cute yeah or like because it's like because like you're known for telling bad jokes it's not like you tell good jokes and like no it's you always tell bad jokes and this is another bad joke that you've told um something also real quick before we get into the rest of this plot we have to mention benjamin loeb who's the dp of this movie who helped create all these images along with Panos. And also I want to read the list of movies that Panos told Benjamin to check out before they shot this movie, because you would think like most of the time when you hear about the, the references or reference movies that directors give DPs, it tends to be, you know, your Kurosawa's, your Bergman's, your big classics, uh, studio stuff, Casablanca, that kind of thing. Benjamin was told to check out the movies The Hitcher, Days of Thunder, Revenge, Black Rain, Psycho 3, uh, The Fist of the North Star, an animated film I've never heard of before, and Cobra. Psycho 3? Yeah. It's so a like very specific film to point out. <laughs> yes. No, exactly. I mean, that's again, we were talking about that before. Panos knew what he wanted. He asked for it and he got it. I feel like it's very rare these days. 
<laughs> I mean, it's very rare that they get let to do the thing that they want to do. Uh, they, I mean, I even hear, I've been, I, I have heard complaints from people about like, well, Netflix, that just goes to show you, you shouldn't let directors do whatever they want. And you're like, why? What? Like most movies are bad. Like, yeah, but sure. Like yeah. Dead. You're going to get some duds, but it's, you get a better chance of like coming across the next fucking Spielberg. And well, and like Martin Scorsese got to make the Irishman finally. Like there's, they gave Alfonso Cuaron his, his double Oscar of best uh, cinematography and best director, which had never been done before. Or sorry, best, uh, best picture. Yeah, um, Mank was yeah. on fucking Netflix. Yeah. Like there's a lot of stuff that like, like and Mank Fincher's been trying to make since the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. No, actually it's sometimes it's good. And sometimes it's bad to give directors yeah. control, but it's almost always bad to let the guys who write the checks make the decisions about what's happening. All you need to go do is look at the two suicide squads. One, the bad one, the, the money people got to be in charge. And now the new one, everything that I've heard, the good one, is because James Gunn was like, I'm going to make a hard R movie and we're going to make my script. And they were like, okay. And then they did. And it turned out, oh, James Gunn knows what he's doing. Surprise, surprise. Weird, isn't it? It's, it's almost like you should Wild. hire these, these people that you respect and then maybe, I don't know, listen to their ideas and opinions. It would be a wild spreadsheet. Anyway. But, but, and, and then you pair that cinematography with the score. Oh, Johan Johansson. Oh. oh, may he rest in peace. But his what, what score. Else, what else did he work on, Johan Johansson? Um, he did Arrival. He did Sicario. Oh. Yeah, he's got a bunch of amazing scores. But even if, like, even if you don't like this movie, I almost guarantee that you will love the vibe of this score. If you are looking for a movie to drive around at night to, this is up there with like Drive for great soundtrack to just drive around to. It is dope with a capital dope. Yeah. And, and yeah, Panos didn't even expect, because this this is the, the, the composer that he wanted to go to from the start. He already knew this is the guy that he wanted. And he's like, you know what? We're, I'm going to do my Hail Mary first. Mm -hmm. And he had already seen, um, he, you know, he, he did, Johansson had pretty much already seen Beyond the Black Rainbow and absolutely loved it, which I, I need to see that now. I, I, I feel, because they're talking about how this film was an exhalation mm -hmm. from Beyond the Black Rainbow. And so, and I, I before we, we, I got up on here uh, to record this, I watched the trailer for it and it looks crazy and fascinating. And it, it apparently... It it is a just a big bonkers movie. It and the other movie that I would suggest, especially if visually you are looking for something similar to Mandy, I would say the movie Barbarian Sound Studio is another, uh, with uh, Toby Jones, uh, is another great, I almost said Toby Keith, which would be wildly different. Uh, but it is a, a similar <laughs> a similar movie using uh, incredible macros and color and close-ups and uh, reflections and refractions uh, and the ilk. Um, but yes, no, um, his first movie, yeah, first movie is great. Um, I, I prefer Mandy, but they are definitely two parts of the same whole. And I would not be 
surprised if Panos ends up making a third. Directors have a tendency to make trilogies, and I would I would be kind of surprised if there was not a third part of this oeuvre for us to look forward to. Yeah, no, I and I mean, but wouldn't Color of Space also maybe be that, or was or is mm. that a project he was doing separately? Uh, uh, no, that's that's something he's doing separately. Uh, it's also done by that piece of shit who beat his wife, um, who did uh, what's it called, uh, Island of Doctor Monroe, Richard Stanley, um, who uh, used to be kind of cool but now sucks. Uh, wait, wait, but- wait, 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 wait. So Richard Stanley is the director who yes. originally was directing the Island of Doctor Monroe. Yes, crazy and camped out in the woods. Yes, and then he finally got to do Color of Space. Uh, as kind of his big comeback. And then it turned out he beat his wife or domestic partner of some sort. But yeah, no, he sucks. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious because the the boy in, in that film is the son of um, a friend of mine that I know through a friend. And so I know we, we haven't done that film or talked about that film because I'd be curious to see if maybe she'd be interested in getting on and talking to us about the experience. It'll be sure. Being- I'm going to rag on Richard Stanley, but yeah, no, we can do that. Oh, oh yeah, no, no. And I think anybody who beats their wife should be ragged on, which is why, like, but he, once again, like, look up the documentary on, what, what is it called? For, Lost for, Souls. For making of, Lost Souls is a documentary about the making of the island of Dr. Moreau, and it is in fucking insane, absolutely bad shit. Like, I just kind of want to hear, like, cool, what was it like working with that guy in the modern day? What was it like working with him post Island of Dr. Moreau? Like, what was that shit? Let alone like having your child work under somebody like that. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's a, a small like side tangent, but it's the, I, I have not had the chance to see The Color of Space, but it's one of those films that is on my list. If anything, just because it, it's, it seemed like it had the essence of Mandy. Um, it, the, so the the all of the trailers are very much kind of aping a, a Mandy and very much writing on. Hey, we also got Nicolas Cage. If you think that Mandy is slow, uh, that movie will kill you. Like color, like color, color of night, right? Um, color of yeah. space. The color of space. Yeah, color of space will kill you. A huge amount of color of space is like crazy stuff happens and then they cut to the Spielberg space or the, sorry, the Spielberg face as they're like, and then we don't quite see what they're cutting away to. And like, don't be wrong. That, that that's very much in keeping because it's a bit like, so color of space is uh, based on an HP Lovecraft story. And that's mm-hmm. all you should need to know about how much stuff happens. It's yeah, an precisely. HP Lovecraft story. Like most of the time, very little happens. But that's not bad. It doesn't mean they're not scary, but it just means like there's no, there tends not to be a big fight at the end. So, okay. Now, well, we are, we're, I, I want to say we're, we should get into this movie a little bit plot wise to just kind of explain a little bit what's happening and then give people just kind of some highlights at the very end of kind of like what to expect in the third act and then let mm-hmm. them get to enjoy that because there's, there's like, there's no, there's no explaining it. Like there's no, there's no, no. Uh, like us reveling it will not get to explain to you 
how cool the chainsaw fight at the end of this movie is. Yeah. But just well, know that there's a chainsaw fight that we're building to. Oh, yeah, which is definitely an homage to Texas Chainsaw, too. Oh, for um, sure. Oh, for certain. But like, like even then, like, like there were I, I watching after watching a couple of interviews with Nick Cage and the director and and several others like Linus Roach and such. Like a big question was like, how how did you, did the director describe this to you? Because on when you really look at the dialogue by itself, it seems eh, okay. It seems very basic, but like like it's the context between the lines it's it, it, this is very much a show a show don't tell kind of kind of film and so like it, it it would be very tough really to describe this film to anybody which is why i think the director mostly had a bunch of the cast members and like a lot of his crew and his cinematographer watch a bunch of these movies for reference and then you know, like Nicolas Cage had already loved Beyond the Black Rainbow. And so he kind of had a general idea of what he was getting himself into. But like, this is a very difficult vibe to describe. Well, all right. So like one of the things that I can think about is the Martin Scorsese quote when he made Taxi Driver. And they said, Marty, what is this movie about? Why did you make this movie? And he said, well, guys, if I, if I could tell you that. I wouldn't have had to make the movie. And that is exactly this. Like this, this movie in the hands of so many other people is a thousand other movies. This in the hands of Panos is this movie. And that's why describing it, like that's why, as I was saying up top, this is kind of a movie that's hard to spoil. Even if you know what's going to happen, it's the way that's going to happen. This movie, mm-hmm. as we said up top, is very simple. Nicolas Cage lives with Mandy. They're very happy together. They're two weirdos in love. While she is walking home from her job, a cult leader happens to see her and tells one of his cult members, I would like that lady to be part of the cult and I would like to do things to her. And he says, no problem, boss. And he goes out and summons a biker gang that is willing to work for blood, acid, and cocaine. And they go off and they <laughs> steal, they, they, they kidnap Mandy from Nicolas Cage's and his, her home and take them both hostage. Nicolas Cage is then bound and left outside while Mandy is brought inside to one of the most amazing, pathetic, huge nerds of a villain. Like, I love one of my favorite, like, he's such... After being drugged up to, like, insanity. Oh, oh, like, she is, she's given, like, some weird wasp venom and acid and God knows In the eyeball. Yes, and she is just tripping out and losing it and he's she's brought before him and she he, he is he 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 shows her his light and his album of folk music and he proceeds to go through this like neuro linguistic programming pickup artist 
shtick. Yeah, about like how he's anointed and holy, and like she should well, just. He's, he's like a he's a failed band member. Like the band kicked him out of their band. Well, like and he, he went and made his own music. Well, and then he like kicks all of his clothes off and is like, "Look at me, come into my light," and she laughs, and it's a like it's that 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 might be my favorite part of the movie because you're so expecting oh no this is please don't don't do this to mandy don't and she just laughs at his tiny entitled like impotent penis and he's all mad because he can't shit ain't even hard yep and then they decide to punish Mandy, and uh friday the 13th style sticker in a sleeping bag and set it on fire and nicholas cage does not take it well <laughs> but like it's the, like he doesn't look away he doesn't no. like, like it, it, and that's it, there, there's so much in that just like they like sure like they show their shots of like there's close up shots of that bag burning and somebody wriggling inside of it but really, the big focus of that scene is completely on the close-up of Nicolas Cage watching a love of his life get burned alive. Oh, it's full-on Nietzsche. Like, look into the void, and the void looks into you. It, it, like, a beautiful yet disturbing scene. And it's... It, I, I, I agree with you, by the way. Like, I love just the, the bring him before... But, bring him before the God um, kind of scene where his followers are just sitting adoringly around him. Which, oh, he, makes one way, of them, like, he makes one of them play Russian roulette just to prove her love, just to show her love for him to Nicolas Cage, which is oh, again, yes. great wild scene. Oh, oh, amazing scene. And I think plenty of credit has to be given to this amazing cast that plays his followers and the weird Cenobite, style biker gang that is like that, that pretty much work for him it's, it's just like his there his drug guy made literally the perfect concoction of like this lsd soup that he presents to them that literally drove these cenobite like bikers out of their fucking mind and then they just they'd be like that was amazing our we, we've been driven insane by this incredible drug and we want more of it and so that's kind of how he controls these very violent people. But it's um, the idea that they're very God, like they're very God or demon-like. Uh, demon-like, definitely. So uh, we should say Annette Dennehy. And I'm sorry, dear, I'm going to butcher your name. Olwyn Fiore, F-O-U-E, with one of those little T-lays. Yeah, plays Mother Marlene. Yes, that, that's the, the, the mother, that's like the, the hand and the witch like the the two right hands of 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 jeremiah our evil prince character you know you i mean like there, there's every time you see this like every character in this movie has some sort of fairy tale excalibury kind of equivalent even the like the the, the biker gang are kind of like demons you see them drink this lsd stuff but it's from like a chalice it's very much got that, you know, they're, I mean, they might as well have gone oh, to there's some a, witches well, there's a and theme. said, boil, boil, toil and trouble. Uh, even, even the way that 
uh, sister tracks down Mandy by just like going to her work and asking some questions. That scene very easily in a medieval movie could have been her conjuring up some sort of spell to, you know, some sort of mirror, magic mirror on the wall, uh, seeing glass kind of a fairy tale device to get the same kind of information. You know, the evil princess, I want to know where the princess is. She goes, hang on, let me go ask the thing. Or she rolls some bones or whatever. And then, oh, sure enough, she's just at the blacksmith shop or whatever. And there we, you know, and Bob's your uncle. There we go. We're, we're on our way. Yeah. And then you have, like, but then the, like you have the side scene with Bill Duke from Predator, who, which I'm just, I wish Bill Duke had been in, he's been in plenty, but I wish Bill Duke had been given. Well, hold on, hold on. More films. Be- Whoa. Before we get to Bill Duke, there are two things we need to talk about first. Oh, please, Ken, please. So after Mandy dies, I would say the number one thing that we need to talk about is Cheddar Goblin. Because Cheddar yes! Goblin is maybe one of the most Comes iconic characters. Nowhere. It, it is the uh, Cheddar Goblin is the intermission in this movie. It comes almost at the exact halfway point. And super fun fact, David, did you know that the Cheddar Goblin was brought to us by the same good folks who brought us too many cooks? Casper Kelly? Yes, sir, I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, it pops out of nowhere. And when I found out that little fact, I was beside myself with joy. Too many cooks. Uh, which if you, if listeners, if you have not seen too many cooks, do, do your life a favor and look it up. It's a good time. Just keep, keep watching it. It's a long mm-hmm. one, but it's, it's, it gets, it gets crazier and crazier and crazier. Um, okay. But yes. And now second after Cheddar Goblin, which so for the uninitiated at home, Cheddar Goblin is a recreation of 1980s commercials that is somewhere between like, he's kind of like the ghoulies mixed with Kraft macaroni and cheese, uh, but a little wet, a little weird. And it is fantastic. Yeah. But the second thing that happens before we get to Bill Duke is the scene in the bathroom, which is a scene only Nicolas Cage could do. This is this is this is I would argue that scene in in Vampire's Kiss. It is even more only he could. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like this. this, It's the most Cage. This 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 is Nicolas Cage's magnum opus scene. Like I never like I am so unbelievable. Like I just really I I rewound the scene twice because I just I had to see it again because it's all one shot. It's like like nothing special about like camera work or anything, but it's just goes into the bathroom after this traumatic event and you see everything from broken down sorrow to licking my wounds to drinking myself stupid to holy fuck I'm going to kill some people in a manner of like 2 minutes so so all right first off I'm going to I'm going to backtrack you just a minute um oh, there is please something do. special about the way that the camera moves you can totally tell that they have no idea what Nicolas Cage is going to do because while it is one shot, it does start to move in 
and Dolly and Truck closer to Nicolas Cage. But if you watch the way it moves, it kind of creeps in a little bit. And it's about to creep in more and the Nicolas Cage does something they're not expecting. So they kind of creep back a little bit. And then once he settles in, they kind of creep back in a little bit more. Like you can can, hear with teeth. It's it's improv. It's you're not. It's it's why you hire Nicolas Cage. You don't hire Nicolas Cage to do the expected thing. You hire Nicolas Cage to do the unexpected thing. And he is doing that in spades. Well, it's like this. Like like this. His. In the scene in Kick-Ass when he's first in costume as uh, his sort of Batman counterpart. Um, Big Daddy. They, like they, they, Yeah, Big Daddy. And they first meet Kick-Ass. I do remember like the crew saying like, like, or the editor saying in post, like, I have no idea how to cut this together. Like you do, you, you cut it together however you can because we are keeping this because Nicolas Cage is is genuinely doing old school Batman right here. Oh, yeah, he's been very upfront that he's doing Adam West that whole time. Yeah, he 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 is absolutely doing Adam West, but he does it. That's the thing. Like you you hire on Nicolas Cage, you get Nicolas Cage, which is him. Like he plays. He mm-hmm. like once once he knows like because there's two different types of Nicolas Cage. There is Nicolas Cage doing the film to pay off uh, all the back taxes that he got himself into um like like he'll do like a bunch of really like straight to uh, you know s- straight to to video style films which which are not the best but still corny enjoyable but then he'll do like like nicholas cage coming to work and that's when he like he goes he goes to play he he walks into the scene he knows has an idea of what he wants to do but he he experiments and whatever fucking works works and it was beautiful can it was so beautiful absolutely uh, see and now yeah so that takes us to david uh, to david duke no that's very wrong duke oh he'll do wildly wildly wrong duke um, so yeah, so we get to Bill Duke. Bill Duke um, is the keeper of the toys, for lack of a better term. He, uh, Nicholas Cage, he kind of keeping in with the lumberjack theme, goes and gets his bow and arrow to fight the bad guys. And then after he leaves Bill Duke, he goes and makes himself one of the Excalibur. coolest axes in the history of axes. It is... Yeah, it's again one of those. Why you got to see Mandy? Because there's just oh, Ned Denny, people with gets an axe. The best of that axe. Yeah, he does. Yeah, like beautiful moment. Literally, just like places it in his mouth and just like the case of like Ned Dennehy playing Brother Swan. Like I will never give my lord up. He is the he is the god of everything. And just no response to it. Literally, just press that blade into his yep. throat a little bit more, a little bit more. God damn, what a There's badass the, axe. So, so all right. So after they, they create the axe, that leaves us about an hour and 15 minutes into this movie, taking us into the last third. And that's when we finally get the title card for this movie. This movie might have the, the record for the longest time for a title card to show up, a full hour and 15 minutes in. And then after that title card goes up, like shows up, they pull the limiter off this go-kart. They, they full, full of nitrous. 
uh, they shove a bunch of like bees in the pants of the guy who's going to ride it. And then they just like light a bunch of rockets and fire that guy off like into the apocalypse. Cause the rest of this movie is crazy. We are, we are starting to run out of time. So let me, let me give you guys a couple of just highlights of yeah, some snippets. of the stuff to expect. Give us some snippets, Ken. Give it to me, baby. There's a giant penis knife fight. There's throat slitting, neck snaps. Nicolas Cage does what is arguably the greatest line of cocaine that anyone has ever done, ever. There's an axe fight. We have a whole amazing oracle scene with a chemist and then there's a tiger for no particular reason <laughs> we get the the deep throat uh kill of uh of of, of, of the hands kind of a character. we get flying axes to the dome and then then we get the chainsaw fight and that doesn't even finish the movie off we still have to get to the temple we still have to get to uh, Mother Marlene. Mother Marlene and her it's final a stellar act. performance, by the way. Oh, it's fantastic! So it's like the, the the all of these characters do such a good job of playing that line between being pathetic, but still being able to exercise their power through taking advantage of certain things and drugs and such. Like it's, it's so people who much. have never had power before now feel like they have unlimited power but still are are very like when when push comes to shove they realize when that when that power's gone and they still don't want to die and it, it becomes a very pathetic show oh absolutely i mean the, the final scene with jeremiah i think is a perfect example oh. of that i don't i don't i don't want to spoil what the turn is but no but he, it's a performance he, that's insane he, he bellows a line that just lets you know how absolutely pathetic he is. And it's, I can't, it, it's just, I think I remember literally like laughing Perfection. out loud in the theater. Yeah, it's fantastic. Oh, and the greatest, well, just the greatest end to a villain too. Yes, no, I mean, yeah, no, great, a great end, very satisfying, uh, very much as well. Because then, it is a fairy tale and this is how it has to end. Uh-huh. Yeah, and um yeah, and then we get like a nice little coda with with Mandy and Nick at the very, 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 very end that I think does a great job of kind of um, end capping the weirdos in love meant for each other kind of message that brought us into this movie that it, like it, it's still to, like at the end of the beginning and end of this movie, it is a love story. It might be a love story between two kind of weirdos, but like two two weirdos who are in love. The ending itself, I found the ending to be all like the traumatically sad because oh, this yeah. is somebody. This is somebody who loved a woman so, like who loved somebody so much that when they lost them, all they could do is, is lose it. Literally, literally, no, no, like light their world on fire. Mm-hmm. And and when when what what needed to be done was done. What's left is an LSD riddled brain mm-hmm. and this crazy neon sunset. And it's just, it was beautiful. I thought the movie ended beautifully. And I also appreciated the fact that the credits ran on no music. Oh, yeah. Because 100%. The, whole, the whole film is a music video. 
I mean, it's a rock opera is what it is. Yes, yeah, rock. There we go. Better, better term for it. Rock opera is the best way to put it. Um, it was an, an amazing homage to, uh, to 80s heavy metal, um, especially heavy metal cover art. Um, I, I, having watched this the second time around, judging it poorly the first time, I'm glad that I got this second watch because, like, absolutely, this film is a masterpiece. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think you have to go into this film understanding that it is a slow burn at first. But once you are at that final third, holy fucking shit. It is amazing. Um, but yes. So that's Manny, baby. Absolutely. Well, David, that means we are coming up on our choices for next week. I know what movie I have chosen to throw into the gauntlet. What about you? Have you chosen a movie for the gauntlet? Oh, Ken. Ken, I, I have indeed. I have indeed, baby. Uh, I, I'm going, I hear I'm you going typing. To... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, are you choosing? No, movie? no, no, I know. I know what it is. I just want to make sure that I get the director's name correct and everything. No, this is the, uh, the Lance Henriksen classic by director Stan Winston, uh, Stan Winston, Pumpkinhead. Wow. Okay. We're going Pumpkinhead. All right. Yep. All right, I saw well, it, it, it got added to Shutter recently, I think. And very cool. I saw it pop up. I'm like, oh, it's got to be this. I love this movie. So, All right. Well, then next week is Battle of the Peas because it's Pumpkinhead versus Psycho Gorman. All righty, baby. All uh, right. Great. David, do you have any plugs that you would like to make pluggable to our listening audience? Absolutely, Ken. Um, you can check out our Instagram at shutter underscore show, uh, which is run by myself, where uh, I will do, which is where you will find the polls for our movies. Um, anything that we have coming up will be announced on there. Um, you can also check me out at underscore DW Marlowe on Instagram, where you uh, see me getting up to my regular musings. We're coming up to that wedding. So if you guys ever want to see how the wedding went, you know, feel free to check us out there eventually. Um, Ken, what about yourself? Where, where, can, where can the people find you? Well, they can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ken Stachnik, K-E-N-S-T-A-C-H-N-I-K. They can check out my dog, the Shutter Show mascot, Freddy Potatoes, at Freddy Potatoes, both on Instagram and Twitter. You can check out the Shutter Show Twitter at Shutter Show. And you can also email us, ShutterShow at gmail.com. But with that, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of the internet, boys and ghouls, I should say, of the internet, thank you again for listening. Good night, good luck, and most importantly, wash your fucking hands. God, please do. Bye. Good night, everybody. 